it's very easy to be comfortable. You know, if you're privileged, you can just ignore a lot of this news. You don't pay attention to people drowning in the Mediterranean so much unless there's a particularly shocking incident. I'm Raj Kumar, and you're in the DevX Book Club. Maybe you're a global development nerd like me. Maybe you work at the UN or at an NGO. Or maybe you're just excited to hear from some of the world's leading authors on the most important issues of the day. Either way, you're in the right place. Grab a snack, get a comfortable seat, and don't worry if you haven't read the book. You're very much welcome. Get ready for our discussion. This week's book club author is Sally Hayden. Sally is an award-winning journalist whose coverage of migration, conflict, and humanitarian crises has appeared in major outlets across the world, and she's currently the Africa correspondent at the Irish Times. Her first book, My Fourth Time We Drowned, originated from a Facebook message she received from an unknown sender, a man claiming to be writing from inside a Libyan detention camp. The conditions faced by him and his fellow detainees were horrendous, and his desperate message came from a phone shared in secret among hundreds being held. The message kicked off a sprawling investigation that led Sally to interview hundreds of refugees and migrants who found themselves victims of the EU's newly muscular efforts to patrol the Mediterranean Sea. My Fourth Time We Drowned was one of the New Yorker's best books of 2022, and The Intercept wrote that, quote, there is perhaps no better testament to the racist double standard at the core of European border policy. Hi, Sally. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for doing this. Uh, it is such a pleasure to have you here and and to really get a chance to dive a bit deeper into such an important story that often doesn't get the attention it deserves in the media. Uh, you are an exception to that rule. You dedicated a lot of your reporting to the refugee crisis, the migration crisis, especially uh, for refugees crossing the Mediterranean and in detention in Libya, where much of your book uh, takes place, My Fourth Time We Drowned. And maybe we could just start with the beginning. Uh, you, got a, you got a message, I think it was on Facebook in August of 2018. What was that message? What got you started down this path? Yeah, um, exactly. So I got a message that read, Hi, Sister Sally, we need your help. We're under bad condition in Libya prison. If you have time, I will tell you all the story. And yeah, basically responded to that um, and asked what was going on. I, be, I, I was like, I'm a journalist, you know, I can't help you. I was obviously a bit skeptical, like, why is this person contacting me? Who are they? How could they be in prison? And you know, managing to send me a message. Why would they contact me personally in the first place? Um, but I responded and and got into a conversation, I guess. And very quickly, it became clear that actually uh, the person contacting me was in a pretty much emergency, potentially life or death situation. Um, there were 500 men, women and children who had been locked up for months and then abandoned in the middle of a war zone. And they were desperate for help. And that was, yeah, the, that first communication, I thought that, you know, maybe if I raise awareness about this, if I publicize it, help would come for them. And it must have been some sort of terrible accident, you know, that this had taken place. And actually what happened was that kind of started me on what ended up being years and years of reporting 
on the brutal effects of European um, kind of anti-migration policies and the human rights abuses that they're subjecting people to. And at the time, you were a freelance journalist. And so you note in the book that while you might have tried to publish this somewhere, you ended up really just putting a lot of their direct statements on social media, obviously in a responsible way, you know, withholding their names for safety and security when you had to. But this story kind of took on a life of its own as people on social media started to follow you and, and what you were hearing from detainees around, around detention centers in Libya. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm still a freelance journalist. I think you can't do this type of reporting without being freelance. A lot of the time it's it's hard in this day and age to get, you know, the have the capacity basically to dedicate yourself to a story like this. And that was why I stayed freelance, because I just thought that this was so incredibly important. Um, yeah, what happened was I started posting the messages on Twitter and it ended up being a Twitter thread that got literally millions of views and went on for years. And I would use it. So what happened initially, there was that first group. But as I started posting the messages online, I began to be contacted by more and more people inside detention centers. And basically phones were prohibited. So they had hidden phones that they would, you know, take out at night maybe or or in the bathroom and use those to send me messages updating me on what the conditions inside the detention centers were like and I would post that online exactly when you know in communication with people when when that was kind of what they wanted me to do and yeah, it became clear that there wasn't proper oversight of these detention centers. So they were being run by militias. There were meant to be NGOs working in them, but the NGOs didn't have full access or sometimes didn't have access at all. And very quickly, when I started posting that Twitter thread, I was started getting contacted not just by uh, refugees and migrants, but also by NGO staff and by human rights groups and by lawyers and many other people who were like, they also needed or, you know, they wanted this information. And what I was revealing was contrary to what they were often being told both by their own staff and by the people who ran the detention centers. So, yeah, it, it kind of put me in a very strange situation. And none of this is to say that I'm, you know, any sort of extraordinary person. Like the fact that I ended up playing this role in this situation just showed the failures that were existing. It showed that there wasn't actually proper communication with the people who were being impacted by these policies. And Yeah, I'm just thinking for, for people listening in who may be familiar with the story of ships carrying migrants trying to cross the Mediterranean and sinking and, and people dying. They, they may be familiar with that aspect of the story, but but why are people in detention centers across Libya? Maybe you can tell that part of the story. Yeah, so, I mean, I didn't even properly know this when I started getting those messages. You know, this was, this was really what shocked me and what spurred me on to spend so much of my life, really, um, reporting on this, that what has been happening since 2017 is basically European Union attempts to stop migrants and refugees from reaching European territory. And as listeners will know, like, you know, if somebody has a right to claim refugee status, you know, they can make a claim for international protection. It's pretty much impossible for them to do that unless they reach the territory of the safe country first and make that claim. So since 2017, the EU has been supporting um, 
supporting the Libyan Coast Guard to basically intercept boats of people trying to cross the central Mediterranean to reach European territory. And so now I think the number has topped 120,000 men, women and children that have been caught this way and forced back to Libya. And often they're then locked up indefinitely without charge. You know, they don't have access to lawyers or anything like that. They're just locked up in these detention centers run by militias. And, um, the basically it's a circumnavigation of international law so you have the eu conducting surveillance but then the libyan coast guard is the one doing the actual interception which means that it's like technically not or you know it's arguable but it's not violating um international law which would stop a european vessel from returning somebody to a place where their life is in danger so i by getting these messages, I suddenly had direct communication to people who had been forced off the Mediterranean Sea, forced back to Libya and locked up indefinitely and basically said I then to to document what are the consequences of this policy. And, you know, I realized that we weren't hearing from the people who had been caught at sea and forced back. And I wanted to document what was happening to them. Yeah, I think, as you say, it's a kind of a loophole in international law being exploited here. The, the term you use in the book is, I think, uh, refoulement, where the Europeans, if they were to take these asylum seekers in hand themselves, wouldn't be permitted to send them back. But because they found this loophole of working through the Libyan Coast Guard, uh, they technically are allowed to send them back. And it seems as though for people listening who think, well, maybe these detention centers are a temporary phenomenon. It seems the whole economy has grown up around them. And maybe you can just describe the forces that keep these detention centers in place and potentially even growing. Yeah, I mean, so what it's been described as by analysts is like a move from um, monetization of of movement, so like people making money through smuggling or trafficking, to monetization of captivity. And so you're keeping people locked up or keeping people in these cycles where they, you know, attempt to escape again and again, but all the time exploiting them and exploiting their families for more and more money. And so when we say like detention centers or Libyan Coast Guard, you know, actually it's kind of been more and more proven now. This is not just by me, this is by like, for example, an independent UN fact-finding mission that the links there are links between all of these groups. So it's like the smugglers are not totally separate from the militias that run detention or from the Libyan Coast Guard. And actually like you can get trapped in a cycle where you're just moving between all of those groups again and again. And the title of the book, My Fourth Time We Drowned, it actually comes from a direct quote from somebody who tried to get to sea, tried to cross the sea again and again, um, and was caught each time and forced back. And, you know, you get locked up and then you potentially like pay a bribe to the people running the detention centers, or you um, get sold sometimes directly to smugglers or traffickers. Then you pay those people, then you go to sea, then you get caught again and, and you're trapped in this loop. And... Another way, of course, that there's money being made is by forced labor, people um, in detention being forced out to work. And then also, um, also obviously, like, you know, aid diversion. And so there's, you know, there's lots of, I mean, there's obviously a lot more detail in the book. And there there's is. other investigations, I think, being done as well. Yeah, there's a lot of compelling detail in the book, which I think brings the story to life. And, and, to oversimplify it a bit, you get the sense as a reader that there are some refugees 
coming from certain countries that have a large global diaspora and the smugglers and the, the people keeping them in captivity see them as you know potential sources of of money from their family overseas and so you have now these huge diaspora families all over the world and i'm thinking about somalis and ethiopians and eritreans who raise funds through their families often online crowdfunding to pay huge amounts thousands and thousands sometimes tens of thousands to their captive uh, to the to the people who are smuggling them or detaining them and then it seems like there's others coming from other countries that maybe don't have those resources and they are more likely to be put into forced labor um, and so like tortured and terrorized in a different way than the ones who are you know forced into captivity and tortured and terrorized there yeah and i mean that was one thing that shocked me like the crowdfunding online like crowdfunding not certain if it's happening right now but i very much assume it is but um certainly at the time i was reporting this i was sent links all of the time by people who were crowdfunding to pay ransoms for like on facebook and um they'd be posting like pictures of people being tortured and say like you know i i need help for my family member please can anyone contribute anything they can to to raise these ransoms of yeah maybe five thousand six thousand seven thousand dollars to then pay that to the smuggler or trafficker to get somebody freed and yeah it's i mean i i should say i mean sorry we're talking about like all the human rights abuses and everything horrific happening in the book I've been told that it's like strangely like very readable and I really like appeal to anybody listening to give it a go to read it because it's really not an easy topic to get people to read about but like it it, obviously everything is explained much better there and yeah I have been told by people who read it that it's easy to follow and it's also you know there's a lot of human stories in there as well it's not just like a list of terrible things that happen but hopefully it explains this whole process a lot clearer for for people yeah it does and in part because i think you get into the details that really explain why these horrific things happen you know and and it's a tragedy on all sides so on the one side it's sort of a farce and a travesty in terms of eu policy where you you talk about the the conversation around human rights and the the kind of narrative framework that the Europeans use to describe their, what they're doing. But on the other hand, they're essentially empowering this situation. They're letting it happen or even facilitating it to happen in this way to avoid the migration they don't want to see on their shores. And on the other hand, you see the, the countries where refugees are, are coming from and the failure of governments there and the massive corruption, the failure of the kind of development project in places like Eritrea, which you talk about as kind of a North Korea of, of East Africa. Um, and people, you know, huge numbers, one-tenth of the population fleeing the country. Um, so it is, you're right, it, it's, it is readable. And it also gets into, I think, some of the details that explain why, um, from a first-person perspective, from the perspective of these refugees, like why these horrible things actually do happen. Um, and, you know, part of it, maybe it's, it's human nature and people can be cruel, but there's also a huge economy and politics around this. And these people are just stuck in the middle. And, and there's also a big separation happened between like, for, for example, like I'm European, right? So I'm from Ireland and the fact that I 
to be honest, like I reported on migration, I had vaguely heard about these policies before, but until you're actually messaging someone, or for me anyway, until I'm in touch with someone directly who has been caught this way, and I start to hear what they're going through directly from them, I just don't think it hit me somehow that this is the actual human implication of what is being done on our borders right now. And I think a lot of like, Uh, like I never read a book before so it was very interesting for me first of all to learn these things myself through like years of reporting this and secondly to explain what I had learned how these structures and these systems are being built up so that we're actually not hearing the voices of the people impacted by the policies and even when you do hear some of their voices like they are they tend to be dismissed you know there's there's one situation in the book where I um went to at the UN Refugee Agency, a, a spokesperson, and asked them about reports that six people had died so far in a detention center in a very short space of time. And they told me, you shouldn't believe everything that you're hearing from refugees because, you know, they'll exaggerate the situation. And, you know, it, it's not reliable, basically, to go off what they say. And that same detention center, for most of the rest of that year, someone kept dying on average every once every fortnight. And there was eventually a UN um, visit to there that that clarified, I think at that point, 22 people had died. And I had raised the alarm like at a very early stage and that had just been dismissed at a very high level. And it really made me think, you know, what has gone wrong here that we're not listening to the voices of the people who are being impacted, you know, and the policy is not, from what I can tell anyway, it's not being decided or, you know, implemented in a way that's actually you know figuring out what those people need or how they're being impacted by things and you know for us in the west and it's true in the u.s as well i think um it's very easy to be comfortable you know if you're privileged you can just ignore a lot of this news you don't really you don't pay attention to people drowning in the mediterranean so much unless there's a particularly shocking incident for example and like how has how has that been built up that we're able to look away from that and that, you know, this mass drowning, for example, can continue? Yeah. And I think, you know, anytime you start getting into this horrible calculus of where are people suffering the most? And I know, you know, those of us who come from the development and the humanitarian space, often you find that, right? There's a sense of what's the worst humanitarian crisis in the world? What about the second worst, you know? And there's this kind of horrible calculus. And what I, I love about your book is you talk about the individuals. And I think often if if, you, if we focus more on the individuals and what's driving these situations, it might give us some early warning before you get to the worst crises and the big numbers, because these individual cases you refer to, you know, six people dying in a, in a week, they have added up to some very significant numbers in terms of that awful calculus, right? I think something like 20,000 people now have drowned in the Mediterranean trying to cross. And I don't know what the numbers are of people who have 20, died. 27,000 since uh, 2014 in the whole Mediterranean, uh, like more than that. And then and then I don't know the numbers um, in terms of people who have died in, in Libya in these detention facilities, but it must be quite a large number by now just reading through the stories you document in your book. I mean, and that's a number that's not being collected. Like that was one of the things that I started asking everybody when I started reporting on this, because I was hearing about so many deaths, you know, from starvation, medical neglect, torture, like just 
you know, all these, all these deaths, disease as well. And um, I started asking the EU Commission, the UN, um, Frontex, like who is documenting how many people die once they're actually forced back to Libya? And they all said nobody. They either said nobody or maybe try these people, like, but nobody was doing that. And actually there was, you know, arguably a deliberate attempt not to register people inside detention. So like you actually like one detention center, Tajora, for example, there was a direct hit on it by an airstrike. And I think only one person was officially identified. I don't even think they were officially identified. They were identified in local media back in Ethiopia. But um, around at least 54 people, I think they said died in that airstrike, but actually we'll never know the true number. And some of the people who survived it said they thought it was about 150. But yeah, no, no one, there was no list of who was inside there. So that will never, you know, we'll never know who actually died. I guess the agency responsible for making such a list for registering these people is UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. I know you talk about them quite a bit in the book. Um, and I remember at some point talking about maybe 25% of detainees, maybe it was a specific center, were registered through UNHCR, but, but three quarters were not. What do you come away with after all this reporting in terms of your view of UNHCR and why it has struggled so much to do its job in Libya? Um, yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, yeah, in terms of the registration, I wouldn't necessarily say that they were the only ones responsible for registering. I mean, the people running the detention centers also presumably could have done a, a registration or done some sort of list but they didn't I became aware of this importance of you know registration when I started reporting on that very first detention center and they were saying basically they just want somebody to know who is inside there so if somebody gets taken gets forced to go to traffickers you know disappears for whatever reason like they were always terrified of being taken away and you know sold to traffickers they wanted there to be some record that they had been there and they felt like if there was someone with a list of their names they were less likely to disappear basically and so they actually made me their own list and sent it to me and um I sent that I think onto the UN and that for me like was very kind of shocking that there were people who were just so desperate for somebody to know that they existed that they were sending you know this list to me who was like a journalist thousands of miles away um of hundreds of people and yeah, I mean, in the in terms of the role of UNHCR, I feel like it's a bit hard to explain here so people can read the book for the full um, kind of a fuller explanation, not even the full, because obviously there was a lot more that happened that I couldn't fit into the book. But I think one of the big concerns about how UNHCR is operating in Libya, or certainly was at the time, was that you have this EU anti-migration money, the Trust Fund for Africa, is what's funding the Libyan Coast Guard. But it's also what's funding the UN, particularly IOM and UNHCR and their work in Libya. A large proportion of that comes from the same funding that's funding the Libyan Coast Guard. And so I realized this quite early because I started being contacted, you know, by concerned UN staff who obviously wanted to stay anonymous and by other people who would say that, they felt they were being used to whitewash the implications of European Union anti-migration policy. And so if I interviewed European officials and I said, you know, how are you justifying that you are 
supporting the interceptions of like men, women and children who are then forced back and locked up indefinitely in detention centers that have been compared to Pope, uh, to concentration camps by Pope Francis, among others, they would say, well, we don't approve of the existence of the detention centers and we're trying to improve the conditions in them through the UN. And then like the UN, UNHCR, for example, they'd kind of post online and they'd be like, you know, we've done a distribution of blankets today. We're so grateful to our partners at the EU who have supported this distribution of blankets in this detention center. But they wouldn't mention that the people were in the detention center because they had been forcibly put there basically through EU policy, you know. So it was this kind of like slightly uh, questionable situation where it it wasn't it the whole story wasn't been told and then of course you have the situation like I said where you know I had a UNHCR senior official tell me I shouldn't even be believing what refugees were telling me about conditions in the detention center and at the same stage they didn't have full access to the detention centers you know some days they couldn't get in at all they had to call it ahead and say if they were coming you know they weren't able to speak to everybody if they arrived and so they weren't you know, get getting the full picture. Basically, what I started revealing was not the same as what they were saying publicly. Yeah, you talk about, for example, when some of these official visits would happen, uh, the detention centers would be cleaned up and fixed up and made to look beautiful for the visitors, so that the story coming out would be, you know, not as dramatic as as it was in reality. And and maybe the maybe the best example of where UNHCR was caught in this position of kind of whitewashing EU policy is the story you tell about a facility they built that was highly touted. The refugees called it the hotel. Uh, I think it had a a formal acronym was GDF, a gathering and distribution facility, if I remember right. Maybe you can just tell a little bit about that vignette. Maybe that might help illuminate for listeners kind of where UNHCR ended up sitting in this story. Yeah, I mean, that was... uh... Basically, a a center that was kind of, it's a a bit complicated, sorry, but there were like a very very limited number of evacuations every year were available for um, people registered as refugees in Libya. And this was meant to be a center that would kind of gather them, it's called the GDF Gathering and Departure Facility. It would gather them before they were evacuated from Libya. Um, And it was built... Uh, it basically before it opened, which it opened quite late. Um, it was kind of like whenever you ask questions, it would be like, "Well, the GDF is opening soon," so you know that it was always kind of seen as this is going to be an improvement on the situation. And then when it opened, it obviously was only available for a very small amount of people. But instead, what you had was everybody who was locked in other detention centers was kind of seeing it as the the place that was safe, you know, the only place that you can get to where you'll actually be safe. And it ended up that there were various groups that turned up there, including when the Tejora bombing happened. And so a detention center was bombed. A lot of people were killed. The detainees who had been held in that center, some of them for around two years, um, were then let out of the detention center, the ones who survived. And they walked to the GDF and they were eventually let in, but they were told you can't stay here. They had nowhere else to go. There was another group that then showed up and they weren't allowed into the inner perimeter, but they were allowed in the 
kind of outer part, but they weren't given any food and they basically started starving. And eventually UNHCR said that the GDF was going to close down, that everybody had to leave. And they even said maybe it was going to be turned into a detention center itself that the Libyan authorities might move in. And yeah, there were various security concerns that, that came from that. And yeah, I mean, it's explained much better again in the book, but it was kind of, for me, reporting on this, it was like, because it had always been held up as, you know, things will be better once this opens, and then the whole thing fell apart so quickly, it it really kind of showed that it had never really been a viable solution to the issue. The issue was a much broader, you know, much bigger one. Are you interested in the intersection of business and social impact? Do you want to know how corporate sustainability, ESG, impact investing, and more can contribute to development finance? My name is Adva Saldinger. I'm a senior reporter at DevEx, and I've been reporting on these issues for nearly a decade. I'm the author of DevEx Invested, our free weekly newsletter dedicated to development finance. Every Tuesday, we explore how companies, investors, and market mechanisms are reshaping the world of development finance. Visit devx.com newsletters and join us on Tuesdays. You get the sense in your, in your book that you've really been wrestling with your role as a journalist, which is obviously pretty fascinating to me uh, as a journalist myself to think about what is our our role in reporting a story like this and what's the right way to do it. You talk about some of the power imbalance, you know, between yourself and the refugees you're, you're talking with. Um, you found yourself kind of unwittingly at the center of the story often because people on all sides, the, the NGOs, the UN and others, they were coming to you because you had access to some of these, these refugees and you had to really think about, you know, can you provide contact information or what information can you provide? You don't want to put anyone in harm's way. Maybe just take us a little bit into your experience as a journalist reporting this story and what, what if anything, you've kind of taken away from it for your reporting going forward. Yeah, I mean, this story completely took over my life. Like I worked on it every day for years and it would be particularly at nighttime, like my phone, because people had hidden phones. So um, it would be maybe 11 or 12 that the guards would not be watching them anymore and they'd go under blankets or go to the toilet or find some way of sending me messages to tell me what had happened that day. And so it tended to be then I'd be up until two or three just collecting these messages and reports of what had happened in detention and compiling them to send off to anyone I thought could help. And a lot of the information I didn't make public because of, you know, security concerns for the people inside detention. And that for me as a journalist was like not the way that I would normally work. You know, this was very kind of not necessarily my role, but like I said, I just kind of became in the middle of this um, big story because people in detention, they didn't trust they, like they were very scared about the SIM cards being shut off. They didn't want their phones confiscated. They didn't want their number passed around because they felt like that could, um, you know, be very, very dangerous for them. 
And so I was somebody who people trusted to to gather this information. And it was a huge responsibility. And it was honestly like too much for one person. And that's not to say that others didn't get involved at various times. But certainly when I started, it felt like, you know, if I got on the tube, I was living in London then, if I got on the tube, if I got on a plane and I had no internet contact, I was terrified because I was thinking something can go wrong and there's nobody to alert about it. Um, and yeah, at the same stage, it's very uncomfortable being, you know, for example, a, a white like Westerner who has a lot of privilege reporting on something like this. And like when I started reporting on it, I was thinking, you know, this this must all be happening by accident. Like if if people knew about this, it wouldn't be continuing. And it's hard because like I'm not an advocate. I'm not an activist. You know, I'm not really meant to be thinking like that. But actually, the, the abuses happening are so grave. And, you know, this is like horrific these are like crimes against humanity were crimes potentially um that I felt like I need to just raise awareness of this and something's gonna change and then uh yeah actually what started happening was that I started winning awards and I was very uncomfortable with that because I was like I'm basically being rewarded career-wise while things are staying the same for the people who are in detention and um yeah I don't know like what what have I learned I don't know (laughs) you just kind of plug on the best you can like I stayed freelance while I reported this because I wouldn't have been able to keep going you know I wouldn't have had the capacity to do it if I took a staff job like no newspaper was going to be like you can spend all your time reporting on this topic and I was thinking even when I got like did the book like maybe if I put all the information together in a book that will at least help for there to be kind of some accountability or some questions asked or some reckoning. It's been very kind of um, devastating in a way, I think, to my own morals or my own idealism because I've realized actually as I went on that a lot of people knew what was happening and they know what is happening. And European politicians, for example, will tell me, yeah, like we know this, but we can't do anything unless the European public care. And right now, the European public don't want migration to Europe or they don't want at least Africans migrating to Europe. And when you hear that and when you realize that, it really makes you lose a lot of faith in humanity. And um, yeah, I don't know. All we do is just plug along and, and keep trying. Right. But yeah, it's been kind of kind of devastating. In some ways, my takeaway from the book is that this is a horrible side effect of a policy that is working. You know, it's this EU policy that it's designed in many ways to to work like this, which is the EU doesn't want migrants to come to the continent. So they have an agreement with Turkey and, and now they have this agreement uh, for Libya. And now for Tunisia as well, there's a new one with Tunisia. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like as a journalist, I what I do is document and like the book now has been used in a submission to the ICC for example calling for named European um, officials to be investigated for crimes against humanity and it has been referenced in the uh, legal challenge against the Rwanda deportations against the UK Home Office and also there's some trials against traffickers happening in the Netherlands which I know the prosecutors have consulted it and um yeah I don't I don't know like at one point I talked to lawyers and they were saying 
we think all change will come through the law and I was like the law takes so long <laughs> but I mean now like yeah maybe some some change is happening but really what hap- what we need is for people to wake up and realize that like crimes against humanity are being done in our names to keep us comfortable and that's you know us in in Europe and I mean I'm sure similar is happening in the U.S. It's a very parallel story in the U.S. with our southern border um, and having been down to that border and spoken to some of the uh, refugees who have come across, you're right in in that it's it's very different when you hear their stories, right? It changes the picture a lot from you know, what I thought I understood. Um, the book really is remarkable in large part for that reason, because it is so dedicated to the stories of the refugees told in their voices. And I know you said during the conversation quite a bit, we got, you got to tell the whole story by reading the book. And I agree, it's, you have to read it. It's, it is a winding tale and it's multiple tales, but it's so beautifully written the way you've woven them together. And I think there's no answer at the end of the book. You know, I was kind of curious how you were going to wrap it up um, because the, the forces that have led us to the situation, they're not ending. You know, it's still... You have, a, you have a map in the book and you show kind of some of the countries of origin of where refugees are coming through Libya to try to cross into the, into Europe. And, you know, the forces pushing refugees out of their home countries, those aren't ending or changing. Maybe they're moving, uh, you know, the, the, the situation changes in individual countries, but those general forces are there. And you talk about the climate getting worse and that pushing more people to leave. I don't know if you have any take on kind of how this story will evolve. I'm not certainly asking for a solution, but from your conversations with refugees, do you have a sense of how the story might evolve from here? I can say how I think it will evolve. Um, I mean, a journalist, you're not meant to do predictions, but from what I'm seeing already happening since I finished it, um, it's not good. Uh, basically we have so much spending happening like without proper oversight as well so the EU is spending billions of euros billions of dollars for example to basically stop migration and in ways that are propping up dictatorships militias and systems that oppress people and make them need to leave further one thought that I've had since I finished the book as well um, I was in Somalia last year twice reporting on the drought that's happening at the moment that's said to be largely climate change related. And uh, I think 1 million people had been displaced by August last year. I'm not sure what the figures are now. But um, when I was there, I didn't see like NGOs distributing food, but I did see business people who were gathering money through uh from the diaspora again crowdfunding basically gathering money from the diaspora and using that to buy food and distribute it among people who were displaced and it really made me think a lot about like migration how migration is actually a form of foreign aid if you allow somebody for example from one somali family to come to the west get a job send money back you can su- they can support their entire family and you're get you're giving directly you're not you know spending on these overheads that international aid organizations um have and that's not to say that aid organizations don't have any role but like I do think that it's it's made me think a lot more as to why there is no kind of reframing of allowing international allowing migration from you know parts of the world that actually are hugely in need um and how that that can actually benefit people in a very concrete and very clear way and in Somalia obviously like 
it's said to be climate change related, but they barely produce any emissions. All the emissions are being produced by rich countries. And so, um, yeah, it, it really made me think about, you know, how a duty is owed to people suffering and, and how that could be paid. Well, you said it really made you think, and maybe that's a good way to end our conversation because your book is a book that really made me think too. Um, and and I hope our DevX Book Club listeners will join me in reading it. I, I know there's a lot to be gained, I think, from better understanding this complex story, a story we touch on in our reporting, and it's touched on in reporting you know, around the world. But um, this is a story worth getting deeper on. And so I, I really want to thank you, Sally Hayden, for, for the conversation, for being a part of it today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, I also love DevX, by the way, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Really appreciate hearing that. Sally Hayden is a journalist and the author of My Fourth Time We Drowned, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route. You can follow her on Twitter at Sally Hayden. Thank you all for joining. If you like the podcast, please share with your friends and give us five stars. And we really do want to hear from you. Please leave your thoughts in the comments or send me a message on Twitter at Raj underscore DevX. To learn what we're reading next, make suggestions for future guests, or submit questions for authors, be sure to sign up for our DevX Book Club mailing list, which you can find in the description of the show wherever you're listening to this. If you care about global development issues and you want the latest news, don't forget to subscribe to the DevX Newswire at the link in the comments, where you'll get the day's top global development breaking news, analysis, and opinion, as well as the date of the next book club. Until then, do good out there, and thanks for joining